What a strange song. This world would be completely lost without you. You are home, aren't you? But we're not. And we sing it and we proclaim it. Remembering the VBS this summer as the kids sang that song. And just the reminder to us, we're not home yet. Lord, we thank you for that reminder. We're thankful for the realization that there is a home in eternity that Christ is preparing for us. And with faith, we look to that end, to that day, and set our focus and our affections not in this passing world where everything that we see will be destroyed by fire, but we set our hope and our confidence in what Christ has promised. We're not home, and we acknowledge it. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of the assembly today that we would remind ourselves of where our eternal home is and live in faith every day in the light of that promise. May we join with the people of faith through the ages and strive to live by confidence in what you have promised. Aid us to that end. I pray that you'd feed our souls. I ask that by the teaching of the Spirit of God, we would draw close in fidelity to you. For those who would have to say this is their home, there is no other. God, show to them what you have given to us in Christ. Bring them to understand the fountain of which we've sung that brings eternal life and that never dissipates. We praise you for the promises that we have in Christ. We praise you for the gathering of this church around the table and our communion and fellowship with Christ here and with one another as people of faith that are journeying to that eternal home. Meet with us here, and may we feed now upon your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul speaks... A born-again believers as ambassadors for Christ. It's a fitting and important analogy. Ambassadors are posted in a foreign land while remaining citizens of their home country. They live in an apartment provided by their embassy. They're not sent to put down deep, multi-generational roots or to pursue personal business interests in the land where they are. Their mission is to represent the interests of their homeland on foreign soil. And they do this every day wherever their mission leads them with a clear focus on returning home. They know they're temporary here. And I'm sure that many of them very much look forward to being reunited with family and friends and back in their country. Their presence in this foreign land is temporary. Their citizenship and their deepest loyalties lie elsewhere. And yet energetically, day after day, they serve. The worst of ambassadors are those who lose sight of their homeland and prioritize the interests of their host nation or their own personal interests. If you have trusted the gospel, if Christ has redeemed you by his blood, you are his ambassador in this world. Our citizenship is not here. Our homeland is God's kingdom. So while an earthly ambassador acts 
in a foreign nation as representative of his home nation's authority, so we must live by faith in the dominion of our heavenly home. We put our confidence in that dominion. We act each day and think each day and make decisions each day on the basis of the dominion of that kingdom. Nurturing such a life of living by faith is the agenda of Hebrews chapter 11, and we we return there today. The author begins in verse 4 by drawing from salvation history several examples of living by faith in God and in keen anticipation of one's homeland. We see here the history, the earthly legacy of a number of people of faith that he selects from the Old Testament pages. We will have to draw upon our knowledge of these texts, not going into much detail on them, But he begins here, first of all, with Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Drawing from Genesis 4, Abel offers to God in sacrifice a firstborn lamb. God is pleased with Abel, I think it's appropriate for us to italicize and his sacrifice. He receives Abel and he receives his sacrifice. The backstory is not provided for us, but there's sufficient evidence in some of the verbiage that is used to conclude that Abel approached God on God's terms. And that's much of what this was all about. Abel's tender heart attitude toward God led him to offer a sacrifice that conformed to God's instruction for the first family. Abel's brother Cain, by contrast, approached God with a wicked heart that led him to offer a flawed sacrifice. Now, food sacrifices, which uh, Cain offered, are not innately wrong. There are a number of food sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament, but Cain's offering failed to conform to God's will. And again, while we don't have the backstory, we do know that God rebukes him, rebukes Cain, who then in bitterness takes the life of his brother Abel. God is pleased with you. He's not pleased with me. I'm angry at you. And he takes out his life. Abel's love for God and his obedience to the Lord cost him his life. And yet, do you see it there at the end of verse 4? He still speaks. He still speaks. His testimony of faith in the Lord continues to encourage God's people. And I think it'd be good for us just to stop here and think on that point by way of application. Brothers and sisters, To my knowledge, there's nobody in the hearing of my voice who will change the course of history as a famous Christian. They won't write biographies about any of us. But do not forget that your faith in God will continue. It will continue to speak long after your death. It's amazing how quickly we're forgotten in one sense, and yet it is also amazing to see how a legacy of faith continues to bear fruit after the person is in the presence of the Lord. May we not forget it. His faith still speaks. 
Will we leave behind a legacy of faith? It's a question we should face, each one of us. The next example, Enoch, drawing from Genesis 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. In the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, we hear the persistent bell toll of everyone's death. One after another, and he died, and he died, and he died. Then in verse 24, the pattern is broken. Enoch does not die. He is rather translated directly into the presence of the Lord. It says that he was not found. I'd love to know the meaning behind that phrase. Apparently people were looking. They didn't find him. And why is it because he walked with God? I don't know that we can really know what happened there, but it's almost just like God said, you know what, just come on up here. Let's just skip the whole death thing and the time thing and just join me. Let's talk. For this reason, God testifies of his pleasure in Enoch, which was hinged on his living faith. And the author then in verse 6 goes on to describe that a bit further as he's reflecting on Enoch. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Whoever would draw near. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 22. Remember that there? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And then verse 39 of chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So whoever would draw near to God, he says, here it is. Here is how we draw near to God. Here is how we walk forward in faith, how to understand that. We should know that without faith it's impossible to please Him. But whoever would draw near to God, two things. We must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So number one, faith says God is is that means certainly that god exists but i think it also means that god speaks that he acts in this world he is there faith believes that secondly god rewards those who seek him again this implies that he reveals truth and he acts in this world Specifically, it means that we have full assurance that god will fulfill his promises it means we live in full confidence that He will meet us at every turn on the road ahead with His grace. It means we can live by faith and the confidence that He will never leave us or forsake us, that He ordains all that comes to pass, that He works all things out according to the purpose and counsel of His good and holy will, and that He is preparing a home, a home for His people, and He will take us there, that in His presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you'd have to say this morning, I'm not a follower of Christ, I don't know that I've come to put my trust and my hope in him, 
Please know, as John 3.17 says, that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He is. He was here. There is an empty grave to demonstrate no one has ever been able to refute His resurrection. He lives, and He rewards those who come to Him on his terms. We're gathered here this morning as witnesses of that very truth. That when Jesus saves you from sin, you know it. It is a joy that runs deep in your soul. And Christ has given his life as a sacrifice to die in your place to give you that abundant life. To provide that abundant life for his people. For those who put their trust and their confidence in him. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you with sufficient words what a joy it is to walk with Christ, but it is. And the singing in this room this morning, with all of its weaknesses, is a demonstration of those who know it is a joy to walk with Christ. His arms are open in invitation to you to join that frame. Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, for the, that is the rescue from the flood. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's my belief that due to the atmospheric conditions of the earth at that time, Noah had never witnessed rain. No one else had. No one had ever experienced a flood. And we can be certain that Noah faced a lot of ridicule for building a gargantuan floating zoo in his backyard. Year after year after year. It's hard for us to imagine. We know what rain is and we know what floodwaters are. They didn't. And yet there he was, that construction project going on. I'm sure people shook their heads and probably at a point defied him. But God revealed to Noah that the Lord would destroy the earth with floodwaters, and Noah said, it will be. So he built an ark to survive, as God had called him to do. Precisely because Noah believed God would fulfill his promise, he got his tools out day after day, and he went to work in the backyard. William Lane puts this so well as he puts this together with the faith that led Noah to do what he did. He said, faith conferred upon those prophesied events, that is that God is saying that flood will come. He conferred upon them a reality so substantial that Noah did not hesitate to act as though they were already beginning to happen. Noah realized that the word of God is performative. It sets in motion circumstances that will eventuate in the promised reality. Construction of the ark prior to the perception of the danger was itself a prophetic act of symbolic realism, announcing to the world the forthcoming judgment of God. And all people could do was mock. But he kept building, kept building, kept building. 
God will keep his word. And he did. Abraham, verse 8, and Sarah will group them together as they're kind of considered together here in these verses. But by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. We read of this earlier in Genesis 12 today. And he went out not knowing where he was going, knowing only that God had sent him there. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave the security and the familiarity of his homeland in Mesopotamia, relying entirely on the word of God, trusting that God would keep his promise. Abraham journeyed out. He obeyed. He did not base his decision on intuition. He did not rely on his wits. He did not make a calculated decision. He just believed the Lord. God promised to give him a land, and Abraham trusted God, and so he chose to obey him, to do what God called him to do. He went out not knowing where he was going. That is, he went forth wholly convinced that though I don't know where I'm going, God does. He knows exactly where he's taking me. And that was enough. Verse 9 highlights the fact that for generations the patriarchs never realized the possession of the land that God had promised to them. They lived in tents one generation after another. Talk about trust in the promises of God. Each generation to the next still living in tents. They were recognized as foreigners in the land their entire lives. The phrase, by faith he went to live translates actually a Greek term meaning to live as a stranger, to migrate to a place, to reside there as an alien. That's how he went into the land. And you wonder, how is that an acceptable way to live? The little indications that we have is that Abraham had a pretty good life in Mesopotamia. His father, his extended family, all the securities of Mesopotamia were, were there. They enjoyed them. And you wonder why he didn't just give up and return there. Living in tents, being viewed as an alien, never really purchasing any land other than the cave in which to bury his wife. How is it acceptable to live that way? Well, because Abraham lived his life not looking in that direction, but looking rather in the opposite direction. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His tent was a temporary home. It was a place, an apartment in the embassy, so to speak. But he knew a city with eternal foundations was awaiting him. We're not certain what revelation he had. We're not certain what he rested this upon. But the author knows that Abraham's view was forward to the city that has foundations that God has built. Think of that, the foundations in contrast to the tent. A tent you could put on sand for the most part. But a city had permanent foundations. It was an, a symbol of security and eternal endurance. And yet, God's promise to Abraham was not merely a land, was it? What else was it? It was an offspring. 
which proved rather problematic to a man whose wife was infertile in her youth and was now well past childbearing years. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. That is, God was faithful to promise this child to her. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable sands of the sand by the seashore. These figures of speech saying an innumerable company in fulfillment of God's promise. And apparently the wording of the text would indicate that it just took faith for Sarah even to attempt to conceive. We won't go too far with that thought. I don't know what that meant exactly, but trusting that God rewards obedience, she gave herself into Abraham's arms, believing that God would empower her to have a child. She believed his word. She acted in faith, verse 11, because she deemed God faithful. I live by faith in him because I know that he is faithful to me. And so she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. And that, now, verse 13, the author breaks off this string of examples from the Old Testament and pauses to reflect on the characteristic focus of these people of faith. The heavenly prospect of these people is now his concern here in verse 13. Let's consider it. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There's their focus, their self-perception in a nutshell. It's a reference, I think, specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All died believing that God would fulfill His promise of a land and an innumerable offspring. They didn't ever see that. They didn't have the land. They didn't see innumerable offspring. But God had made that promise to them, and here they are, trusting it to death. Death did not suffocate their faith. Their eyes were cast longer down the road. Death merely ushered them into the eternal kingdom. Their self-perception was this. We're here as aliens and strangers. We are passing through. We are, to use the term, ambassadors here. We're headed somewhere else. In the land of Canaan, they lived as ambassadors of another kingdom, another domain. This world is an away game for God's people, and it ever will be. That's how they live, dying in faith with that focus forward on that eternal city, verse 10. Never acknowledging or never receiving the acknowledgement of who they were in the land and never receiving the full fulfillment of of God's promise. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Let's pick through that a bit longer. Verse 14, people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. What's the homeland? Verse 10, That city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's the homeland he's speaking of. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, what's that? Mesopotamia. 
they would have had opportunity to return. If that's where their heart was, that's where their focus was, they could have always gone back. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Their focus is forward. Their home is elsewhere. They live in tents as aliens passing through because they aren't here yet. They're not home yet. Verse 16, continuing at the end there, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Think of it. When we enter the eternal city, I don't know what that all looks like, where that, how that will hit us, but when we enter into that city, God expresses His pleasure to be called our God. In that moment, we will know that every trial that we have ever suffered, every difficulty that we have ever endured for Christ will be worth it. It'll be worth it all. We sing the phrase, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. The calm, the peace will be all the better because of the storms that we've suffered here. We sing, though nothing of our labors stand and no legacy survive, yet we can die in peace knowing that our inheritance was never here in the first place. And so we strive to leave behind a legacy of faith, but in the end, if nothing lasts, if no one notices, if we die alone and the world never sees it, we know that our inheritance was never here anyway. Never. Our focus is on the words of our Savior. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You don't get the feeling here Jesus is guessing. You don't get the idea here that he's saying, I might work this out if I can pull it off. He's saying, this is the truth. I will come. I will receive you. I will take you into your eternal home. It's a confidence with which we can live. And when we do, we see this world in a very different way. We sing that weird song that we just sung, I'm not home. Second Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Everything we see in this physical, real world will burn. Our time here is very limited. But there is an eternal home. And where we put our faith and our confidence in what God has promised concerning that home, we live a different life. Let's think on that life for just a few moments here together.
First of all, what we have to say, just in the preliminary entrance into this 11th chapter, we have more to go by far, but we will see this again, but here we see it for certain, and that is, first of all, that a life of faith is marked by courageous risk. It is not a safe life. It is one that ventures forth. It is one that trusts God in times of difficulty. Secondly, a life of faith is marked by a willingness to live as an alien and often to live as one despised as an alien in this world. We have no particular rights, and so we can be beat up. We can be dismissed. And that's why the fellowship of the church is so sweet. People that share the same homeland, people that understand the dominion of the kingdom of God in their lives, people who recognize it's an away game down here for us, but you know who I am, I know who you are, and together we understand what the Lord is doing. Thirdly, a life of faith is a forward-facing pursuit of a heavenly city. That is our true homeland. And it leads to very distinct priorities. It very much affects the way that we think about what work we do, where we live, where we gather with God's people. It affects the way that we deal with money. It affects the things that we pursue with of pleasure and uh, entertainment and the goals that we set for our life because we have a forward-facing pursuit of a heavenly city. We're ambassadors here. We're temporary. We're passing through. we got a job to do. We can enjoy this land that we're in, but we're on our way out. And everything, every decision that I make, every way that I look at life is to evidence that I'm walking in faith and that confidence. Fourthly, a life of faith is a life that witnesses to our hope in Christ. Can you imagine the ambassador that's embarrassed about the country he's from? that she's from, bring them home. I mean, they're not going to do any good there. They, they need to speak for the kingdom that they're heading back to. So a life of faith is a life that witnesses of our hope in Christ. We represent our homeland as ambassadors on foreign soil. We always know we're on foreign soil. But we're not here to identify with the program of this world, we're here to represent the cause of our Savior. So prepare to confuse some people because they don't share that same hope. They aren't ambassadors for that same kingdom. They are part of the kingdom of Satan here on earth and it's a home game. But we represent Christ, we proclaim His name, and in His authority we go to every corner of the earth as we've sung today to proclaim that He is crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. Number five, a life of faith functions on the principle that everything we do in this waking world is to serve the purposes of our homeland. That's repetition on some level, but I want to look on that thought just briefly by itself. The principle that everything we do in this world is to serve the purposes of our homeland. It's a matter we need to continue to consider every day of our lives as we order them, what we do for relaxation and refreshment, what we do for the plans and the purposes of the future. We, we can't get very far here by weighing in on everybody else's life. 
There's a lot of decisions that every one of us has to make with, our, uh, with a clear conscience before the Lord and decide how we're going to live our lives. But I ask us just this generally. Am I ordering my life as if my home is in heaven? Would it be clear to someone who sees your life and knows how you live that, yeah, they live differently? An unbeliever looks at you and says, "That's just this, I, I don't know why they do what they do, but they, yeah, they're definitely living a different life. Or would the unbelievers who know you and see your life say, I never knew. I didn't see that. It is kind of live like we do. Same priorities, same focus, same desires. If there is an eternal home that we serve, we serve the purposes of that home as ambassadors. It will distinguish how we live in this world. Are you leaving behind a legacy of faith in the city who has foundations, whose foundations and designer and builder is the Lord? It's a question we must ask ourselves, and it's what brings us to this table today that we would identify ourselves as ambassadors of this city. That we would say that, yes, our homeland is pictured in our receiving of these elements. We are saying, my Lord and Savior, our Master and our final home is the Lord and is heaven. And here I identify with that, this message to say I'm passing through here. Let us draw close to the Lord in communion at this table, remembering who He has made us by His grace. Let's pray. Father, we dedicate our efforts now at this table, our communion here at this table in that spirit. I pray that we would hear, reflect, and testify who we are that we have been purchased by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have no other hope in life or in death but Christ crucified and risen. May we come to this table now with hearts that are filled with thanksgiving as we consider the grace that has been poured out upon us. Meet with us here. Direct us here. As we hear the instructions and the invitation to this table, may we take it to heart and help us, Lord, in our human folly, where we allow routine to put us to sleep. May we be alert now and recognize that here, by your grace alone, we identify as ambassadors for Christ. Communing here in reflection of the final meal, the consummating meal that we will enjoy in eternity. Meet with us here. Draw us close. May our spirits be alert to your instruction and to your presence with us in this place. Through Christ we pray.